HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian sitting areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when their travels bring them to Washington. For more information, visit www.tabardinn.com. Hi, Greenhorns. This is Severin. This is another episode of Greenhorns Radio, and I'm happy to be joined today on the phone live from Portland, Oregon, home of many good things and many good laughs, Michael Tevlin of the Cully Neighborhood Farm. He is, well, he's one of the only church farmers that I know, among other things. How are you doing over there, Michael? I'm doing good. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing good. It's busy. It's May. It's a lot going on. Yeah, for sure. How's the season treating you this, this fine day? Um, I'd say that again. How's gardening treating me? Well, this, how's the season treating you? Oh, the season. Uh, it's good, actually. Um, I feel like the May, May has been a lot better so far this year than last year. So, and we have a little bit, we had a little bit better uh, greenhouse situation. So everything's coming up really nicely. Well, having a greenhouse, that's the first thing. Yeah, for Weren't sure. Weren't you doing that whole operation without much of a... Well, let's start from the beginning. Would you mind describing your operation briefly for those of our viewer, viewing our listening audience who haven't been to Portland themselves? Yeah, sure. Um, I, we, and we have about a quarter acre, a little over a quarter acre garden slash urban farm um, on 50, about 56 in Alberta in northeast Portland. It's on a church property, and... Um, in exchange for donating to their food pantry, we grow produce for a 14-member CSA and a farmer's market. And um, we started two years ago, and we kind of grow the, the standard mixed veggie fare. And, um, yeah, that's about it. Well, that's about it, except for that we haven't talked about the logistics of that. What does it mean so, to be renting from a church, and what's great about it, and what? Uh, what's the legal challenge of other people who are who are looking for church access and yeah. think it through? Yeah, well, so I've had a lot of luck just knocking on doors and talking to people, and I originally approached this church um, and asked, I saw the land and I asked them if they'd be willing to entertain the idea of a farm on their property, and they said yes. 
I made a proposal, and their property committee approved it and let us go ahead. There were some some legal things to think about before we did it. Um, there's a little bit of a gray area producing food in in the in the in an urban residentially zoned area, and um, basically, and then also with a church being a nonprofit and us having a business, there was a couple. There was a couple just gray areas, too, but we worked it out, and we drew up an uh, operating agreement, which everybody should do, and kind of made sure that our mission, um, which, you know, includes donating it to the food pantry and, um, and writing grants to involve the kids from the church school, um, by doing that, we aligned ourselves with the mission of their nonprofit, and that that kind of irons out any <clears throat> problems um, that you would have legally. Um, there's still a jury out on whether it's legal to produce food on a residentially zoned area, um, and it's sort of a gray area. There's no really strict rules about it right now, but the Portland, the city of Portland, is working on it with the committee, and um, we'll we'll figure it out and we'll see. Technically, it's not really legal to sell commercially on residentially zoned areas, but um, they're trying to make an exception for food. So that was a long answer, but... <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's off, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm learning from my friends in San Francisco and Boston and other cities is that it is kind of a long process, and, and the right. whole issue of running a, a commercial business in a residential place Right. does seem to be one of the kind of big stepping stones. And probably what's, um, well, but there's been a kind of micro-ranching set of um, city policies that are, yeah. have gone around. And I was on a panel with a lady at University of Oregon, basically mm-hmm. around, like, keeping chickens. Right. Um, so it seems like the way that that has been progressing has been once there's a few cities who adopt a, an ordinance or a policy that seems to work, then other cities adapt it. But that the kind of legwork involved in getting those, getting the paperwork and getting the language to satisfy all the parties involved, right? You know, is right. basically unglamorous. Yeah, and well, I actually met with a lawyer um, for it was it was a cool situation that Lewis and Clark College has a you know low cost option for small businesses to talk to a lawyer, and um, I talked to a lawyer about the whole situation, and he basically was realistic and said that, you know, a lot of people are really, especially in Portland, are down with the garden, and um, it's not going to pose the same problem as, say, like, having, you know, a garage sale every day outside of your house or something like that, um, you know, where people, where neighbors are going to get annoyed or stuff like that. Um, but so it's like, you know, not, he said it's really a low risk situation, but, um, you know, there's still, it would still be great to have it, you know, have some rules. And I guess San Francisco is already, they're already done with their whole city ordinance thing, it sounded like. I don't know if you know anything about that. Well, you know, when I visited your garden, I was with Brooke Budner. And she has been the driving force behind um, the change in her town and a really great place to read up on that whole chain of thinking and the way that it played out in time and 
um, her kind of commentary is on their blog, which is Little City Gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, dot, ooh, Little City Gardens. Dot Google. Yeah, I think I've got on that. Have you website. have you have you been in touch with that project? Um, I think I've checked it out very briefly, um, but I, I haven't uh, I haven't checked it out too intensely. So, because the people who are facing these things. And, of course, as, you know, one of the great exciting parts of being a young farmer, and particularly a young farmer in urban or peri-urban area, is that, you know, it may be a challenge to figure out all this stuff and the logistics and the paperwork and liability and everything like that. But there is also um, certain intrigue and a certain kind of pioneer privilege that because you're there and inventing new different ways to engage with land in different spaces, um, of um, jurisdiction, it's a tremendous opportunity, actually, to completely redefine what farming is. So, yeah. in that in that way, what has been your what have you brought to the table, um, and from an idealist perspective or from a kind of lifestyle perspective, what's been informing um, your goals as you engage in this process? Um, well. I'd say, I mean, my, I have, I'd like to see, I mean, I, as I've gone around this city, the the reason that I chose to do this was, I mean, I, I actually was doing a bus driving job, um, and I really, I'd done a farm internship, I'd really wanted to get involved in farming, and I was driving a bus for um, assisted, an assisted living place, and I would just go around and just notice all these plots around the city. And I've always really, I've just always hated sprawl and wasted space, you know. And um, I've always had this kind of vision for a city that's just, you know, a city, a city that's just alive and packed with activity. And whether that be, you know, food carts or you know, people walking on the street um, or a garden. You know, I just like to see space used. And uh, so that's, I mean, as, I, as I've as i been doing this, I've just had this vision for this. It's a whole acre, the whole area, and uh, it's in a really cool part of the town with half acres, and I can just kind of envision 20 years in the future this whole area being, you know, small urban farmers, people with workshops, you know, doing woodwork, carpentry, all this kind of stuff, you know, and uh, just just a city that's totally alive. And I don't know, that's my, that's kind of my vision and what I, what I've wanted to do by starting this garden. And do you see it happening? I, you, I kind of do see it happening, Now that you're there and you're actually. in the neighborhood, kind of at ground level? Yeah, I are do. Are you able um, to, to, to see that? Um, from the perspective, you were talking about the perspective from the bus seat. What do you yeah. see now that you're there, like, crouched in the churchyard? Um, I actually am crouched in the churchyard at this very moment. Um, but um, I think, actually, that's it's happening in this area, and because um, it's a little... It's an interesting area over here, because you have kind of a working-class, older contingent that moved out here, in the 50s and the 40s, and there's half acre. There's a lot of half acre lots, so people did have <clears throat> workshops, woodsheds, you know, 
small businesses doing that, doing their own thing. And, you know, as farming, food, kind of do-it-yourself kind of stuff has become more popular and the inner core of Portland has become a little bit more expensive. People are moving out here. And, for instance, my farm partner, Matt Gordon, um, he just bought a house, which is amazing. Funny how things work out a block from where we farm here, and they have a half acre, and their friends um, share, they share a fence in their backyard with their other friends that have a half acre. And his girlfriend, or fiancé now, is... Um, uh, she's the director of a, the Portland Fruit Tree Project, which they harvest, um, un, you know, fruit that's going to go to waste, and they want to start an orchard in their backyard. So I, I see that kind of, you know, slowly people are trickling in, and all, a lot of people are attracted to half-acre lots and trying to do their own thing, you know, maybe have, maybe make some money off of growing some food or having a, you know, having their own business, working out of their workshop. So I do see that happening, especially as gas prices continue to go up and the economy is kind of unstable, you know. People are going to have to do things themselves. So I do see that happening, especially in this area. Well, and it does feel like there's this kind of a new set of eyeballs that um, young families are coming to that real estate table with, and they're looking with their realtors at places that have that potential for urban homesteading, and right. it's interesting to see that convert. In Portland, holy moly, there's so many urban farms. Like yeah, I know. I, I thought I knew them all, but block. I definitely don't. There's like a new one every day. And um, let's just talk about this a little bit, because people who aren't, haven't been to Portland and haven't, you know, dreamed the dream might not know about your um, urban farming stores. Will you just give a little perspective on how awesome it is to be an urban farmer in Portland from a from a supplies perspective? Yeah. Did you say urban farm stores? I did. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's a good, there's a lot of resources for farmers in the city. There's uh, especially, um, there's, you know, a few leaders. Um, there's Naomi's uh, who worked for a, she, she worked for a larger, um, a larger amendments supplier and she went off on her own and kind of, um, supplies most of the urban farmers in the area and she sells at wholesale rates. And, um, there's an urban, there's an urban farm store that they really specialize in, in chickens. I, I actually haven't gone there as much because I don't do chickens yet. But, um, yeah, and just there's a few old school, there's actually quite a few old school places that are regaining popularity, I think. There's a place called Linton Feed and Seed on the outskirts of town. And, you know, the Feed and Seeds and, like, all these um, places that were on the outskirts of town and had were supplying farmers back in the day, you know, some of them survived. And as people get really into urban homesteading and urban farming and all these other things, there's there's plenty of places to go to. And I've been, I even, I've been really impressed with just like, uh, I mean, I've been trying to work a lot more on our, our BCS rototiller and try to get more mechanical and just, just the local hardware stores and they just know a lot. And, you know, Portland has a friendly 
helpful vibes. So people are and people are really excited when you ask them to, you know, tell you how to fix a rototiller or something like that. So I've been really happy with the resources that we have here. Well, and that's, that brings up a, a, a point that I think bears repeating, which is often we, in uh, our generation, looks first to, like, YouTube for answers to, to questions yeah. about mechanical things. And, you know, I've found, especially the way that I tend to learn, that asking someone generally with gray hair is um, yeah. much, much much more useful. I know. I, I know there's so many people out there that um, are probably just, sitting on the couch, you know, watching the stocks or whatever, and they would probably love to have somebody ask them all these questions. And, and for I mean, because it's a serious value to have somebody that has the knowledge how to fix their own car, how to fix, you know, a small engine or, you know, how to build a small shed and all these things that if you grew up in the suburbs in the 80s or the 70s or the 90s or whatever, you're not, you know, you just, it wasn't so much... That wasn't valued knowledge, so it's it's a huge asset. And I've found people; it, it just takes asking people. And I've it's hard at first, but I've definitely found people that are excited to help me out. You know, and I've been learning a lot, and yeah, excited about it. So let's talk a little bit if you don't mind, about um, the downside of, well, the downside of farming in the context of a neighborhood and and some of the things that people should be prepared for, not only in terms Uh of the time of negotiating and the complexity of liability insurance, but also just like, um, do you have rats? Say that again? Do you have rats on your farm? No, no rats so far. (laughs) We have... Um, we have a pretty open, sunny lot, so I think that keeps some rodents away. There's not as many places for them to hide, but but we haven't really we don't have a extremely established compost pile yet. So, um, and maybe if we got more compost, they might start going to town. But no, we haven't had too many pest problems. But, uh, and then the other um, urban, well, I guess I meant by rats, I meant kind of in proxy, you know, urban things that you wouldn't expect to find in, in rural ag, but that you're running into with urban farming. Yeah. Or are you feeling like you're, you're, you're a perfect little agrarian island in the middle of the city? Right. Um, let's see, what have some of the challenges been? I, um, some, I mean, it's not a huge deal, but I think neighbors expect a certain amount of cleanliness and orderliness that you wouldn't get out on the, in a rural area. We've had to kind of keep our, you know, keep the fence line trimmed and, and uh, make sure we don't have too big a wood piles or don't let these weeds get out of control and stuff like that where, I mean... On a, in a rural setting, you wouldn't have to deal with that as much. We have had a few things stolen. Actually, we had a we had this sh- uh, shed. It was it was like a canopy, basically a metal canopy, and we had built it um, and not put a just not put a tarp on over it. And we were just going to use it 
to kind of store things for the winter and have a little space to work while we were going to build a permanent shed. And we went on, we went away for Christmas and then came back and it was gone. And uh, <laughs> a couple other, couple other metal things have been taken. Um, so that's one, one. And sometimes we get, um, we've had some people come by and take veggies, um, but it hasn't been too bad. Um, yeah, uh, there's there's other challenges too, but um, for the most part, and we've dug up random things, lots of rocks, because they uh, they covered this property. It was there was a house here, and they kind of bulldozed it because it was in disrepair, and they just buried a lot of stuff. So we've had a we've had a good go of. We have an awesome rock slash metal slash brick pile going, um, and we keep uncovering cool, cool things. Um, but it's it's been great. Other than that stuff. And here's a, a little bit of a personal question, but would you say that it adds to your personal allure? This project, <laughs> meaning, uh, do you think it's um, good for the ladies? Um. Maybe in Portland, definitely, because people in Portland are. I think it depends on what neighborhood you're in in Portland. Probably, <laughs> I think uh, in my in this neighborhood, yes. In Northwest Portland, probably no. But um, I think it gives me something to talk about all the time, and that's that's always good. I'm never I never have anything when somebody asks what I do. There's always stuff to talk about, which is sometimes a big part of, you know, of um, getting the ladies. <laughs> but actually, I have a girlfriend, so. Um, so it worked. I love her. She's awesome. Mission success. Um, yeah. This is good. I want to just give you a chance in case you hadn't... Um, in case you hadn't mentioned something you wanted to mention that you could do it, and also to see if there was resources that you found particularly useful in your mm-hmm. world of urban farming and just getting started with a new project that you might want to share with yeah. others who, who may be basically tuning into this show particularly because that's what they want to do is start an urban right. farm. Um, well, for anybody, um, you could contact me at, you can go to the website, which is cullyneighborhoodfarm.org. It's C-U-L-L-Y, neighborhoodfarm.org. And our emails, me, Matt and my email will be on there, and you could contact us and come and visit us and ask us about starting an urban farm because plenty of people have come out and checked it out. Um, and other than that, I'd say my biggest, my biggest, uh, success has come from knocking on doors and talking to people, um, and just I, I, it's it's amazing that this whole thing started just from going on a run, looking on Portland maps, and seeing who owned this property, calling the church, putting a little proposal together, talking to the property committee, and that's how things have gone, and there's been an amazing amount of other things, too. Um, you know, 
random resources that like you know getting free free ground cover tarps just you know a lot of free produce shelving like lots of stuff and just just figuring out what's going on around the area I have just come from talking to neighbors and just always having my eye out for resources and and uh, people that might be able to help me. So that's the biggest thing, is just not being afraid to talk to people, I think. So there you have it from the front lines, um, well, from, from God's threshold, really. Um, go talk to some people near you, and, and you will, yeah. too, be able to uh, make possible a project that may not have even crossed your mind. Uh, yep. Until this moment, I um, I thank you so much, and I I wish you best of luck. I can't wait to see you again. Um, we're having a party out there in October, up at right the on. Grange Hall near um near the farm on the hill, which I name whose name I'm forgetting. Which one Where, is it called? A leaky farm. Hmm. Um. Up on the hill. Oh, I know what it is. Wealth Underground. Yeah, Wealth Underground. Yeah. Right up the road from Wells Underground, there's a grain hall, and in the grain hall, we're having a young farmer mixer at the end of October. Right on. Right on. I had fun at the one last year. So. Cool. Well, we'll see you there, and thanks, everybody, and, and talk to you soon. The following is a public service announcement from Just Food. Help bring live chickens into food challenge communities through your donations to the Just Food City Chicken Project 2011. The City Chicken Project would not be possible without the volunteer hours, donations, large and small, and the vibrant energy and ideas of the communities we work with. Just Food is a nonprofit organization that connects New York City communities and local and urban farmers with the resources and support they need to make fresh, locally grown food accessible to all. To donate, search on kickstarter.com for Just Food and find their City Chicken Project. For more information on Just Food, visit justfood.org or call 212-645-9880. That's 212-645-9880. Let's keep making New York City a better place to live and eat. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. This little nugget comes from Food Safety News, which is a blog that you can get every single day if you want to sign up for it. I love it. And in this one, it says, in what qualifies as ground-shifting news in the food safety world, the U.S. Department of Agriculture today on Tuesday lopped 15 degrees off of its recommended temperature for safely cooking whole cuts of pork, aligning it with guidelines already in place for beef, veal, and lamb. Heating steak, roasts, and chops to an internal temperature of 145 degrees Fahrenheit so long as the meat sits briefly before it's eaten is enough to ensure its safety, the USDA said. This latest revision for pork comes again on the advice of the FSIS, which is the Food Safety Inspection Service, which says cooking cuts of pork to 145 degree Fahrenheit with a three-minute rest is as safe as cooking them to 160 degrees the previously recommended temperature with no rest time. So um, now you can have a little bit of pink, juicy pork, even if you're buying commodity pork, which should vastly improve its taste and eating quality. This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. There's no problem that Dave Arnold can't solve on his show, Cooking Issues. Take a little listen. 
So Naveen writes in and says, Hi Dave, I'm fascinated by chocolate, especially the transformation from the bitter seeds of the cacao tree uh, to a tasty chocolate bar. That is a, a, a very interesting transformation. Are there any other foods that undergo a similar set of steps, fermentation, roasting, grinding? Also, do you know of any other tropical fruit seeds that could become delicious through such a process? Thanks, Naveen. That's an interesting question. I mean, obviously coffee, right? Coffee goes through uh, you know, a similar, uh, similar set of procedures, uh, quite literally, uh, fermentation drying, roasting, grinding, uh, brewing. Um, and uh, vanilla goes through picking uh, fermentation, right? It's dipped in, usually in boiling water, uh, and then wilted, and then fermented. So it's similar, and then I guess it can be ground to form a paste. But vanilla doesn't taste like vanilla until it goes through its its uh, its paces um, to be fermented. In fact, the vanilla that's uncured is called red vanilla. You can get it. Uh, it's interesting. If you like not- what you hear, you can hear a new show every Tuesday at noon on the Heritage Radio Network, or subscribe to the podcast or check out the archives on our website.